Welcome to the Toll & Stone Podcast. I'm Garrett Ryan, and my guest today is Dr. Brent Seals, Professor of Computer Science at the University of Kentucky. Dr. Seals, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Garrett. Well, it's my great pleasure. For decades, Dr. Seals Richards has focused on using uh, cutting-edge technology and computer software to decipher unreadable ancient documents, in particular, the famous Herculaneum Scrolls, carbonized by the eruption of Vesuvius in AD 79. Before we get into that, um, I wanted to ask, uh, or to consider how we and how you, Dr. Seals, got to this point um, in, in our understanding and your research. So I wanted to begin by asking, how did you first become interested in using your training as a computer scientist to read ancient texts? Yeah, that's a good question. My, uh, my PhD was in computer vision. And so I'm an imaging specialist. And at the time, I was interested in uh, the application of cameras connected to computers to lots of manufacturing tasks and early navigation tasks, you know, robots, mm -hmm. uh, early AI. Uh, but what I, what I discovered in the mid-90s was the uh, emergence of a massive worldwide digital library, effectively, where all kinds of written material and library material were being digitized, made digital, and then put uh, in a way that was accessible. And what occurred to me is that there are many, many things in libraries and museums that are difficult to digitize and don't easily uh, fit into the paradigm of making a digital library. And that was where I saw the technology become a fit for the analysis of some of these ancient objects. What was the first manuscript you work with? In the mid-90s, I became a part of a project to build a digital edition of the Beowulf manuscript. And that was really the first significant manuscript I worked on. Uh, my role was not to image the manuscript, but rather to use the images to build the software for a digital edition so that a scholar could basically view those images coherently and and presumably do, do scholarly work. Mm -hmm. uh, but what was kind of amazing in that first project was what I learned about the magnificence of the objects themselves and the possibility of what technology could do for revealing new things about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I remember when I was a grad student at Michigan, um, the first time I saw a box of papyri, um, you know, the, the, these these fragments that have been torn up from the, de taken up from the desert in the 19th century, um, it was awe-inspiring. You know, even for those of us who work with ancient texts, you know, it's always there on the page in a modern edition. And so they go from that to the object itself. Yeah, it is kind of an awe-inspiring thing. It was for me. It um, was iconic. Yeah. I walked into the room and was holding the only unique copy mm -hmm. extant of Beowulf. And this was something I had read in high school. So, you know. It's amazing. Right, right. Yeah, no, you're, you're going to the source, right? It's, it's, it's a cool feeling. Um, so when did you begin um, using X-ray technology um, to image ancient documents? All of my training as a PhD student and a computer scientist in computer vision was with visible light. Sometimes we would use what's now called spectral imaging, near visible, ultraviolet or infrared. Most of that training, though, was with regular cameras. So it was my work in the medical community that gave me access to technology with x-ray. And I started to make the connection that uh, x-rays, because they are a penetrating technology, mm -hmm. might be just the perfect thing for some of the antiquities that uh, were so badly damaged that they actually might not even be able to be opened. Uh, that sort of non-invasive technique came to me from my work in medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, 
So when did you first encounter the Herculaneum scrolls? We actually developed the idea of virtual unwrapping with objects that we built in the lab. And then mm-hmm. X-ray captures that we did uh, using medical grade computed tomography. So we were a problem in search of uh, material. We were a solution <laughs> in search of a material. And mm-hmm. it was our introduction to Professor Richard Janko Mm-hmm. That led me to um, a, a, an education, really, about the classical world and about the importance and stature of the Herculaneum collection. In fact, he took me in person in 2005 to uh, Naples and the library, and he showed me that material in person. Yeah, no, he's a, he's a remarkable guy. I actually worked with him at Michigan for a couple of years, and um, he talked to me a few times about his experiences with this material, you know, with these scrolls that have been hacked apart in the, in the 18th century, um, often literally hacked apart with daggers, um, and trying to reconstruct, you know, the fragments into something coherent. He spent years, literally, um, trying to reconstitute books of Philodemus, um, you know, and, and succeeded to a degree, which is, you know, a testament to his um, perseverance. But, uh, you know, he is... a uh, very much invested in your research and in hoping that your current uh, work advances even further. Now, I understand that when you, be- you began uh, working with Herculean Hercul- material or become interested in Herculean Hercul- Hercul- material, you face a series of uh, bureaucratic hurdles um, in, access- in accessing that stuff. Yeah, that's true. Uh, the collections are uh, tightly held. Uh, obviously, the the material is incredibly fragile. And it wasn't, uh, you know, my sphere of influence as a computer scientist. It it ended up not being possible for me as a loan researcher uh, to mm-hmm. make a strong enough case to be able to simply, you know, do the experiments to collect the data that I I wanted to. So what I did is I built a coalition of uh, like-minded folks that spanned several fields, including papyrology and uh, conservation, and together we built a team that had the gravitas we needed to start doing that work. So you were able, I understand, to scan uh, two scrolls that are in Paris. That's correct. Yeah, the, the the Institut de France has a library that supports the French National Academy. And in that library, there are actually six scrolls. Mm. Four of them were opened. And I, I use air quotes for opened because uh, <laughs> it's a euphemism for destroyed in the sense mm. that they're now fragmentary. But two scrolls there were actually still intact and are. And... Through partnerships with a professor at the Sorbonne and at CNRS, one of the research facilities in in France, uh, we were able to make a scan of both of those scrolls on site in 2009. It was the first time actually anyone had ever seen the interior structure of an intact Herculaneum scroll. When you were finally able to scan those scrolls in Paris, um, what did you find in the scans? Any surprises or <laughs> positive or otherwise? We had been working on objects that we built so that we could do proof of concept for what I eventually termed virtual unwrapping, which mm-hmm. was using x-ray to see all the structure inside and then opening that structure up so that you could simply read what was there. And what we discovered when we scanned those scrolls was that the structure was much more complicated than I had imagined the mm. fibers of the papyrus had delaminated inside. Uh, it was difficult to identify single layers that were coherent, uh, which is a requirement to do virtual unwrapping. You need to find the place <laughs> right. where the writing is and, and unwrap it. Uh, and the size of the data 
just in terms of the scale, exceeded our ability to do the computation. So this was 2009. Mm -hmm. You can go back and look at the history of computing and see that having enough memory to read the entire scanned volume into a piece of software and do meaningful work on it was a difficult thing at the time. Mm -hmm. all, so all those things conspired to uh, bring on a, a kind of feeling of hopelessness uh, at the same time, mm -hmm. excitement, because no one had ever seen the internal structure of a Herculean scroll mm -hmm. before. Right. Yeah, I feel it's like, a, I almost like the first satellites to see Mars up close. It's like, wow, we're seeing Mars, but, you know, but no canals or, you know, or <laughs> cities or whatever it might be. Right. Um, yeah, no, I, I remember, actually, I first read about your research. Um, I think it was in 2015 or 2016 when someone emailed me um, an article about your work on the Ein Gedi scroll um, or En Gedi scroll. Um, can you talk a bit about that, about how that advanced your research? Yeah, the scroll from Mengeti was an absolute uh, miracle that um, that came to me through the Israel Antiquities Authority. And I'll always be grateful for, for them, including me on the project, because what, what happened was that we had improved our software with the target of Herculaneum. And the complexity of Herculaneum, uh, of course, hadn't changed. We were trying to improve our mm -hmm. ability with software to deal with that complexity. And then in the meantime, uh, great data from a scan that the Israelis had made from this scroll from En Gedi came to us, and it was immediately possible with our software to do the entire problem of virtual oh, wow. unwrapping and then reading the text. And so it was a huge breakthrough because even though I hadn't expected that the first scroll that we would read would be one from Israel, it, mm -hmm. it, it went through the entire process and revealed a text that was good enough that the scholars could actually edit that text. So mm -hmm. it's a fantastic result. Right, yeah, I mean, a proof of concept, right? That it works, the techniques you, de you developed work. It's just that, That's right. right, the, the scrolls defy, the, the Herculean scrolls defy them. And, and on that note, so I know that it's not possible, or it wasn't possible then at least, to uh, virtually unwrap the Herculaneum scrolls in the same way as the Engedi scroll. Um, can you talk about, about why that's the case? Well, the um, substrate, the papyrus that is carbonized uh, on which mm -hmm. the text is written uh, makes the problem of identifying where the text is written, you know, in these scans, uh, extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. And you can see this in the cross-sectional X-ray scans. Uh, instead of looking like a nice little tight jelly roll uh, that's mm -hmm. kind of spiraled up into a, you know, a, a tight roll. Instead, it looks uh, like complete chaos. And that was one of the differences between uh, those two uh, mm -hmm. artifacts. But another difference was the chemistry of the ink itself. X-rays are amenable uh, in terms of the contrast that you see in an image taken with X-ray. They're amenable to uh, materials that have a lot of high density. So that's why when you see a, an image in x-ray of someone's skeleton, it's clear that the bones pop out, you know, because they're so dense compared to your skin. Mm -hmm. And so we're all familiar with that. Uh, so likewise, the ink of Engedi, uh, although the chemistry remains unknown, uh, must have had some kind of heavier element in it uh, because it, it made it easy to see the contrast where the ink was. And that is not true, actually, of Herculaneum. Mm-hmm. So the papyrus and ink just blend together on the scans, and it's, it just can't pick them out. Can't pick it out with the naked eye, uh, uh, despite the virtual unwrapping. And there's also a very, mm -hmm. very strong pattern that comes from the papyrus fibers. Oh, yes. Uh, and the weave of that, uh, even if you were able to pick out 
a subtle ink signature, it gets uh, obfuscated in the weave of the papyrus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oh, you, wow. you know, we've done some experiments. Um, normal, normal people have a really hard time detecting, you know, small shifts in intensity when you throw that onto the top of a, a really complicated pattern. You know, mm-hmm. sure, right. Oh wow. Um, so I, I know that, of course, in your various attempts to get beyond, you know, this apparently insoluble problem, um, that uh, a few years ago, another article I read actually about your research uh, some years ago, that you used the uh, the diamond light source synchrotron uh, near Oxford to scan the Paris scrolls. Um, how did these scrolls um, contribute to your understanding of the problem and how to advance it? We ended up scanning again the very same ones that we had scanned in two thousand nine, but this time mm-hmm. using uh, the controlled source at Diamond we were able to recover a scan that had much higher spatial resolution, mm-hmm. which means in terms of voxels per inch or with an image, you would say dots per inch. Mm-hmm. We were able to um, capture a scan that was very, very high resolution. And what we realized is that the higher resolution would give us a chance of seeing the shape difference that the ink creates on those fibers. Mm-hmm. If you think about it microscopically, the fibers are coated with ink and that changes slightly the shape of the fiber. It's thicker, or mm-hmm. maybe the ink fills in a gap between two fibers that wouldn't be filled in otherwise. Uh, we wanted to see that effect, and to be able to see it, we had to get higher resolution. So Diamond provided the ability to do that. Hmm. So, so with these now uh, super high resolution scans um, over the past, you know, four or five years, um, have, how is what's happened? I guess has there been any, any breakthroughs or any big changes in how you're seeing the scrolls and understanding what's inside of them? We, we immediately had a breakthrough in using machine learning on mm-hmm. that higher resolution data because what we found is that uh, the, the signal from the ink indeed is captured in that scan, even though it's very difficult to see that with the naked eye. Mm-hmm. And so what the scans from Diamond provided for us was the training space that we needed to kick the tires on the machine learning mm-hmm. approach. And that was the huge breakthrough that came from being able to do that. Now, now, for me as a classicist and for my listeners who are often are more uh, humanities inclined, could you just give us a, a brief uh, layman's uh, uh, breakdown of how machine learning works uh, in this context, what, what it is and how it can be applied to this problem? Sure. Yeah. it's a, The approach that we're using is a, an augmentation of uh, approaches that people are probably familiar with in, in the space of maybe recognizing license plates or mm-hmm. seeing faces in images or doing surveillance, that kind of thing. But loosely speaking, uh, we use a supervised approach, which means that we associate uh, sections of the X-ray that we've captured with labels. And the labels are are simple. They're labels that say this area has ink or this area does not have ink, it's papyrus only. Mm -hmm. And the the problem of associating those labels is really the fundamental problem. All of the apparatus after that is how you capture that mapping between the labels and the the complexity of the X-ray into mm-hmm. a system that lets you I- interpret that. And by interpret that, I mean, once you have learned all those labels, if you will, mm-hmm. you're, the system is then able to take an unknown patch and classify it as to whether it has ink or it's only papyrus. Mm-hmm. And so uh, without descending into the technical details, the, mm-hmm. uh, the association of those labels is really one of the key problems to make that work. 
Okay, so so, so training uh, the program, the computer, uh, to read the scrolls and distinguish between uh, signal and noise, essentially, I guess, uh, between the you know, actual ink um, and just convolutions, involutions, patterns uh, that are in, in the scroll itself. Yeah. Um, Another way to okay. think about it is the, uh, the x-ray captures uh, what the papyrus looks like in a very mm -hmm. sort of statistical way. And those statistics kind of shift a little bit when it's the fibers are all coated with ink. Mm -hmm. So we're not actually learning a language or a letter form or a, a character uh, or doing handwriting recognition. Uh, mm -hmm. Instead, we're, we're learning that something has a coating on it I and see. is probably a different shape than it should be if it didn't have that on there at all. Hmm. So in the years since you made this initial breakthrough with machine learning, um, how have you been trying to, I guess, for lack of a better word, train uh, the, the programs you're using uh, to distinguish more neatly between ink and non-ink, uh, you know, the, the coding and non-coding? Well, it's an interesting problem because uh, what we really want to do is read what's inside the ones that have never been opened. Mm -hmm. And if you can scan it and never see it, then how do you train that, right? <laughs> right, yeah. So you don't know where the writing is or what it, what it says. Uh, and that's where the, the irony of the attempts at opening the scrolls comes in because it's actually the open fragments that provide us an avenue for training mm -hmm. these labels mm -hmm. uh, to be able to get at the ones that are still closed. So the avenue huh. that we're taking is that we've taken open fragments where we can see the text mm -hmm. and we use this, the visible text as the labels and we associate that with the images we've made of those visible texts in the x-ray. Mm -hmm. There's a direct mapping and we can uh, affirm, confirm that it's correct. Mm -hmm. And then we can do the tests on that set to show that we are actually learning the ink and we've done all that work. And it's really mm -hmm. exciting because it works and it makes the ink appear once we learn the label set and we learn the subtlety of the signal that's actually there. Mm -hmm. Oh, so the fragments are the, the key to the map, I guess, so to speak. Um, well, that's the way we've been uh, approaching it. Um, what we might find is that as we scale up, I mean, there are many more fragments that have been open than there mm -hmm. are in text scrolls. Uh, so ingesting those many, many open ones to build a, a reference library, which is what I, mm -hmm. I call it, uh, you know, may indeed be the key, the key to very accurately reading the ones that are still rolled up. Hmm. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, of course, you know, the the internet will, will be a buzz or very shortly will be a buzz about um, the, this contest, uh, the Vesuvius challenge, which is meant to try to, you know, throw open the gates to bring in other expertise, other ideas, approaches um, to this, this problem. Can you tell us a bit about the origins of this, this challenge, this contest? Sure. Well, I've always viewed my work as sort of um, building a, a vehicle, building a boat, you know, to, mm -hmm. to explore. And it's hard because the apparatus that you need to do research has to include, you know, a lot of tools and a lot of data collection. And so my early work was really all about that, building that scaffolding. Mm -hmm. um, once we built that scaffolding and started uh, using that to explore and to get results, it captured the attention of other people. And I think Nat Friedman saw some of our work online and got interested in, um, especially the machine learning application of how we were progressing. Mm -hmm. So... The contest is about inviting everyone to join us on this boat that we're now going to sail around the world, right, <laughs> into Herculaneum. Right. And hopefully uh, ex explore everything that's in there that um, we can only get to by scaling up. Mm -hmm. You know, a small research team at a university has difficulty in going to scale, but Silicon Valley is actually pretty good at that. 
<laughs> yes, and the is. contest is about going to scale because we can leverage a community of really talented, interested people that's global. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me and for every other classicist, it's absolutely thrilling to see this, you know, because so often, oh, as you know, there's so few bridges between um, computer science, the tech world in general, and the humanities. Um, and this really could be just a, a bridgehead for that sort of thing, just seeing, you know, how it can revolutionize, you know, our whole understanding of the ancient world. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, so I guess, uh, you know, speaking, of course, as the expert on this, do you have any opinion on the the probability that we actually, that it works, you know, that the contest is successfully resolved or that there's a winning entry by the end of the year? Just all speculation, of course, but. It's all speculation. It, I, I really don't yeah. know. Um, but I, I know that this, uh, this problem will be solved. Uh, we're convinced mm-hmm. of it because we've solved the part of it we've done and uh, we can show scientifically, uh, you know, systematically mm-hmm. that the uh, the tools that we've built are, are adequate and they work. Scaling that up, that's, that's a different question. But mm-hmm. uh, if you look at every system that you know about in the last decade that started, right, as research in the lab, uh, Scaling up is what Silicon Valley does, and they're very good at it. And uh, if I had to bet, I'd, I'd say 90%. Oh, wow. We're going to get a team that is going to build on what we've done. They're going to uh, claim the prize. And I want to see that happen because claiming this prize right, is really the entry point mm-hmm. to recovering the entire library, which is my career goal. Well, I mean, uh, that's... And that's the goal, I think. Every class in the world is behind you on that. You know, we, we want to see this work. Um, you know, as you know, of course, and it's for the benefit of listeners. So, you know, all of the papyri that were found in the 1750s were found um, in one small room and then kind of scattered nearby in some carrying cases, a few a few uh, pieces of furniture, and then on, on the floor itself. Um, and, and most came from, we think, the personal library of a man called Philodemus of Gadara, a philosopher who worked um, in and around the Bay of Naples in the first, first century B.C., um, but the hope is that there's, you know, the villa is only partly excavated. Um, there's two levels that are still buried in volcanic debris. And the hope is that the main library, the one that contains thousands or tens of thousands of scrolls um, that are much less specialized than the ones we have right now, which are almost all philosophical, um, will be discovered. And, and so uh, if that comes to pass, if we finally get the rest of that villa excavated and that library is uncovered, um, is there any dream document or anything you'd love to see come out of that? Any one, uh, I guess, uh, text that would be your dream to find and, and read? Well, you know, even before I got interested in uh, the classical period through my research uh, as a as a Christian, I've been interested mm-hmm. in early Christian material. And there isn't a lot, actually, from the first, second century. I mean, I think maybe second century is the earliest mm-hmm. New Testament witness that we have. Dead Sea Scrolls, in terms of uh, Judeo-Christian material, has has the Old Testament material in it. But if you look at the key manuscripts, even before the Latin Vulgates, you have um, a few key Greek manuscripts that are mm-hmm. fourth, fifth century, and there's there's nothing before that. It's all fragmentary. So, wouldn't it be amazing if there was some kind of early Christian material which can be definitively dated, which is an advantage actually of the Herculaneum material, the definitive date of when the volcano exploded. Mm-hmm. Make sure that every piece of material in there is at or before eighty seventy nine, so it could oh, be yeah. definitively dated to the first century period. So, yeah, I mean, well, how fascinating would that be, right? Yeah, that that's you know, a terminus antiquem, right? You know, eruption. Um, yeah, no, right. I know that they found or there. There's some theories that there were some Christian graffiti in Pompeii, so it's certainly not 
you know, impossible. They could find something. Well, the New Testament um, that we have yeah. reports that there were Christians in the area, and Paul's journey right, right. is recorded in Acts, right? Mm-hmm. Records him actually stopping in Bay of Naples on his way to Rome, mm-hmm. meeting with Christians there. Obviously, we have the Book of Romans, the Paul's letter right, right. to the Rome, to Rome. So there, there's all of that um, auxiliary data that that says you know there was Christian material. Whether it mm-hmm. was any of it was in the archive, I don't know. But uh, I've heard scholars say that Herculaneum is a little bit like a mirror when you ask this question. Yes. You look into it and you imagine what is nearest and dearest to your heart. Mm-hmm. And that's what you want to see. And so for me, given my roots, uh, that's what I'd like to see. Yeah, well, that, that's, I think, a nice way to put it, that I'm sure, you know, for, for me as a you know, classicist, right, it's all these, these Roman historians and stuff. But, but right, the idea that there could be so much in this library that anybody could look into that mirror and actually find something, you know, hopefully. Well, that, that, that's the great goal. Um, well, well, anyway, um, thanks so much, Dr. Seals. This is a, a wonderful project. And uh, like I said, the, the whole classical world is behind you on this and dreaming of success on this. Um, and so, uh, again, if anyone's interested in mo- finding out more, um, you can find out about the Vesuvius Challenge at the website, uh, scrollprize.org. And of course, uh, all over the internet, I imagine, by the time this interview, interview goes live. But uh, in the meantime, um, Dr. Seals, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much, Garrett.